This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I am really delighted to be here. Uh, it's always great to be a part of aging conferences really geared towards aging that encompass both uh, our research community and academic community, as well as, you know, the larger community um, of people who are directly affected by um, us all getting older. So really happy to be here. Um, thank you so much for the introduction, Lisa. It's very kind of you to also mention that uh, I was a national champion. It's something that gets um, that I love to bring up, but that I don't ever want to bring up myself. So thank you. thank you for doing that for me. And I'm also really excited to be presenting behind Maria because one, because her presentation was amazing and she's a scholar that I respect a lot, but also because the content of her work sets up uh, segues nicely into what I'm going to talk about today. So the title of my talk is Measuring More Than Exposure, Does Appraisal Matter for Black-White Differences in Anxiety and Depressive Symptoms Among Older Adults? And while this work isn't directly measuring older adult health and well-being during the pandemic, there's a lot of application and things we can tie to what's happening currently in the pandemic as well. So um, uh, one of the reasons why I really am happy to be behind Maria in this talk is that she kind of already set up how oftentimes researchers go after the disadvantaged narrative in health and aging. And that is really um, even more so the case for thinking about race and ethnic differences in health. We always frame um, minority populations in this story of disadvantage. And while I do think that it is incredibly important to highlight the undue stress burdens and undue um, experiences, especially related to something like COVID, that's an extremely important experience to highlight for black and brown populations in particular. It's not the only or the definitive um, experience of what it means to be black and brown and aging in this country. So I, I think it's just historically, it's inaccurate to reduce our experiences to um, experiences of trauma, pain, excess exposure, greater disease, greater mortality. Um, that is part of the story, but it's not the entire story. And oftentimes academic research um, and scholarship more generally ignores some of the the ways that um, our population, our minority populations are actively coping with the excessive amount of stress exposure that they're under. So that is really the, the high point of this talk today is that my work in general is trying to interrogate spaces where black and brown people are actively adapting and coping. I'm worried about calling it resilience um, just because resilience has taken such an interesting uh, it's, it's its own set of, of research questions that uh, may not directly apply to this, but it is for, this is for sure an example of how Black and Brown people are coping in their active environment in order to survive well into older adulthood. So I am incredibly fascinated by paradoxes in health, and paradoxes have generally um, been referred to as spaces in the health disparities literature where people of color don't look as they should look, which is worse than whites. So white, whites and health disparities literature are the gold standard of health. It's who we always contextualize the best health outcomes next to 
in the United States and who we're always comparing our minority populations to. And I like to push back on that idea, one that white people should not be the gold standard of health, but also that they're not the gold standard across every outcome. And one example or one of the most famous paradoxes in the health disparities literature is the black white mental health paradox. So you can see in this graph here on the right, um, I'm showing an example of, uh, this has now been shown in five nationally representative surveys that um, when you look at uh, depression and diagnoses of depression, as well as generalized anxiety disorder, you have black people here in the dark bar and white people in the gray bar. You can see that um, non-Hispanic whites tend to report more rates, uh, higher rates of depression and anxiety relative to black people. And that has been termed the black white mental health paradox. It's a paradox because if you look across almost every other physical health outcome, black people fare worse um, in terms of their aging profile and uh, concepts around accelerated aging and general ideas about, you know, worse stress exposure over the life course. So there are a couple of really interesting hypotheses about why the paradox exists. Um, but importantly, the paradox exists despite the fact that racial and ethnic minorities look worse on all major health outcomes because they are exposed to greater stress. They also are facing race-based stress um, that are often not stressors that white people face, so things like overt discrimination, especially when you're talking about older adults and Black older adults that are currently living. They've lived through the civil rights movement. They lived through Jim Crow civil segregation. And now the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as the killing of George Floyd at the intersection of, of when COVID hit and, and George, George Floyd's murder was um, a, a popular social justice movement during this past summer. Then you add the fact that Black people are also tend to have lower levels of socioeconomic status, so lower levels of income, education, and wealth. Um, and then also have the dual disadvantage of being both a racial and ethnic minority and have a, having lower socioeconomic status. And then, of course, worse physical health. So worse physical health and worse mental health are often related. You can't always discern um, which one comes first. So sometimes uh, poor mental health can lead to poor physical health and poor physical health can also lead to more anxiety and depression. So these things are related. But moral of the story is that we really don't have good theory, hypotheses, or explanations for why something like the Black-White mental health paradox exists. Paradoxes are historically, they're unexpected and they're understudied. Um, so we don't understand them and, not, and we still don't understand what is be behind the Black-White mental health paradox. But one of the hypotheses is around measurement. Um, I think one of the, the important contexts that should always be stated when thinking about mental health is that it's a, it's a cultural concept. Um, and that, you know, it's mental health has been defined largely for and within white culture in the United States. Um, the diagnostic manual is really, was developed to diagnose, diagnose mental health and issues related to mental health for majority white populations. And now we're fitting that into our minority populations in the United States which can have some um, unexpected consequences. But regardless, there's this really interesting feature of the paradox where um, Black Americans have been shown to have lower rates of actual diagnosed psychiatric disorders rated to 
And there's, there's a whole list of psychiatric disorders that Black people, Black Americans have been shown to have lower rates of for a lifetime in the past year, but that includes anxiety and depression. However, um, when you look at something like nonspecific psychological distress, so um, acting about general distress in your life in the last month, in the last two weeks, Black Americans tend to report higher rates of nonspecific psychological distress. So that suggests that there is probably real issues in terms of measurement around mental health issues in this country that uh, change how we, um, how Black people are diagnosed um, or whether or not they're considered to actually have mental health problems. But I think one of the issues that we don't think about when we're thinking about paradoxes is we always want to see if measurement in terms of the psychological um, outcomes are the issue. But we never really think about the other side of the coin, which is how we are measuring stress at the population level, especially for how we measure stress for minority, racial and ethnic minorities. So in these, I use um, large nationally representative data that speak to the um, aging experience for all older adults in the United States. I'll talk more about this, my data sets um, as we move through this presentation. But um, one of the important things is that in these large data sets, we ask older adults to rate their acute exposures to things like, did you lose your job in the past six months? Did you get a divorce? Was there a death in the family, right? These are important exposures that we need to measure, but they have also some really extreme limitations. And one is that it assumes that this, these stressors are these uniform experiences, and that if we add them up, we'll understand somebody's stress experience. And two, it's really assuming that these stress exposures have a really constrained time frame. So they happen, then what? You know, what happens next? We don't measure what happens next. We just, measure, we just assume that here's the event and that's going to be connected to health in some way. And actually there's a, um, a psychologist. He was at UCLA. I'm not sure where he's at now. Uh, he wrote a paper in 2018. That's this uh, citation here to your right. And the paper is titled Stressnology. And he goes on to describe how we've taken some of the most superficial pieces of the stress experience and tried to equate that to health knowing that there's so much that goes up underneath that stress experience that we don't measure. So he, he's equating stress, our stress research, calling it stressnology to phrenology, which was a, an old school study of um, psychology where they would just look at the shape of the head and the brain in order to make some kind of inference about your personality or um, your behavior. So it's a really, he's basically just saying it's a really superficial way to think about the stress experience and that we can do a better job of thinking about that. I think we've known this also for a while because all the way back in, so stress, stress research reach, reaches back quite a bit. It's a very well-developed area of research that's really just centered around stress exposure. But we have citations all the way back to 1984 that talked about perceived stress and this idea that you have to actually acknowledge it and take in the threat, acknowledge that it's a threat and then respond. And that uh, acknowledgement starts within your head, right? It's a perceived stress experience, it's neurological, the reaction to your environment. And that's what actually kicks off the stress and health cascade. And if you don't perceive something as a stressor, and it's not a stressor, right? You have to acknowledge that. And each person would maybe consider stress stressors differently and how much they really stress somebody out. So uh, Lazarus and Folkman, these are old school um, 
stress researchers that said in 1984, the degree to which a situation is perceived as threatening and elicits a stress response is a psychological process. And it's a function of the individual's appraisals of that situation. So we've kind of lost sight of the fact that appraisal, this appraisal process is really something maybe we should consider in stress research, especially when it's related to health and well-being of, of racial and ethnic minorities. So, um, you know, I, I have spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, do racial and ethnic, are there racial and ethnic differences in this idea of perceived stressfulness? There are not a bunch of, um, there are not many studies that have looked at racial and ethnic differences in appraisal or how you perceive your stress. And there are definitely not racial, there are definitely not studies that do that at a national level. You know, there's often smaller studies that look at um, small homogenous groups of older adults, which makes it hard to apply to, you know, diverse populations of older adults who are experiencing a, a wider range of stressors. So that was one huge goal of mine was to start to think about how we might be able to measure or capture a stress appraisal process or perceived stressfulness of stress, knowing that not all older adults or not all people will consider stress exposure um, upsetting or stressful. And why would there be differences then in, uh, why would there be racial and ethnic differences in how people perceive stress? You know, people think that stress appraisals are this individual level variable that would not have group contexts for which, you know, the stress experience is happening. And um, I want to push back a little bit a little bit on that idea that, you know, there's these cultural and socioeconomic contexts that are really the framework that stress is happening um, and your stressful experiences are interpreted and assigned meaning within that space. And a lot of times racial and ethnic minorities share cultural and social economic contexts, which means they're filtering stress through maybe similar lenses more, more closely than maybe they would with a, somebody from a different or racial or an ethnic group. And all of these things are gonna influence the extent to which any event is gonna be appraised as stressful, right? Another important point in thinking about why racial and ethnic minorities might think, might think of their stress differently is that not only are they exposed to stressors that are specific to their race and ethnic group, they also have race-specific positive resources. So in general, you know, um, our white and higher educated groups are gonna have more access to education, income, and wealth. These material resources that they might use to combat the effects of stress on health. Racial and ethnic minorities have fewer access, have less access to education, income, and wealth as a means to buffer the effects of stress on health. So they have to be more creative in thinking about which ways they might be able to do this. Um, I think especially for uh, Black Americans, something like religion, and if you think about the history of religion in the United States, uh, Black Americans have, uh, when they were enslaved, um, were using churches as spaces of liberation to talk to each other, to think about, uh, they were social forms of social support, um, ways to get out from under the master's eye potentially. So the church and religion has functioned very differently for Black communities in the United States. And it's been a source of racial pride, um, social networking, strong sense of racial identity can be developed in these spaces. And now, you know, that we're, we're further away from slavery, these social, these types of um, positive resources are now sources of space that racial and ethnic minorities can use to buffer the effects of stress. 
So relying on your network to help um, uh, get some financial resources or thinking about having a strong racial identity, what that might do to buffer the effects of stress in the United States. That can go a long way. There's some there's re research on each of these resources as being potential stress buffering um, spaces. So racial and ethnic minorities are going to have protective factors. They're going to first be exposed to stress on a different level. They may appraise that stress differently than other racial and ethnic groups. And then they're going to have a set of protective factors that might help them buffer stress differently than other, um, other racial and ethnic groups. So this can have differential effects then on mental and physical health. And oftentimes in health disparities research, all we're doing is measuring differences in mental and physical health, but we're not capturing all the variability that happens before we get to those differences in health. So that could be part of the issue of why we're having a hard time explaining these mental health outcomes. The other thing that I wanted to stress was that um, our older adult populations in general actually respond to stress um, more positively than uh, they're able, they're better able to respond to stress than younger adults. There's a lot of reason why that may be. Um, but in general, we think it's related to enhanced regulatory processes around emotional well-being. This idea of like wisdom and with age and being able to respond to stress um, potentially more effectively, or maybe you've seen this before, it's no longer something that really spikes your stress response. There's also something called the positivity effect um, that has been shown in older adults where they they actively switch their mental energy away from negative stimuli towards more positive stimuli. And that process may be some uh, one way that uh, black and brown older adults are shifting away from some of the negative effects of stress to more positive, um, the more positive impacts of adversity. One thing that I will mention is that uh, there is a difference, however, between acute versus chronic stress. Acute stress being um, stress that happens really in a short amount of time, like this graph down here, this blue, uh, blue bar is representing acute stress, while this gray bar is representing chronic stress. And the difference here really being the time at which you have to deal with this. Chronic stress is ongoing. You have no idea when it's gonna end. It's the context from which all of our lives are sitting up under. And it's something that's kind of just hovering here. While acute stress happens, it has a high point, but then it comes down and you start to regulate and it's no longer a stressor anymore. And those chronic stressors may actually be harder for older adults to adapt to um, simply because they're gonna have fewer resources oftentimes um, to be able to, to buffer the effects of chronic ongoing stress. So for example, um, if an older adult is facing housing insecurity, it's not as easy to just pop out and go get a job to try to fight the effects of those of that stressor in particular. So in this study, we're thinking about chronic stress and whether or not stress exposure or stress appraisal differentially affect, affect anxiety and depressive symptoms for blacks and whites and how that might buffer the effects of these. So my data are coming from the health and retirement study. It's a nationally representative sample of older adults that oversampled both Black and Latinx adults to make sure we had adequate numbers of both. Our measure of chronic stress has two components. It has this stress exposure component. They're asking about all of the chronic stressors you may be exposed to, whether that be housing problems, financial strain, problems in a close relationship versus our stress appraisal um, 
which is just a response of how upsetting any one of these stress exposures are. So I counted up all their stress exposures, but also averaged how upsetting these stress exposures were to create two different dimensions of the stress experience for white and black older adults. And we looked at that relative to both anxiety and depressive symptoms in the way they're commonly measured in uh, nationally representative surveys. Here's a quick sample characteristics. The mean age of my sample was 66.3 years old, 91% white, 9% black, 54% uh, were women, 46% men, and 51% had a high school degree or less. So here's where the findings get interesting. So our, our older adults, of course, we have typical, what we expect, race differences in stress exposure, where Black older adults are overexposed to stress while white older adults report lower chronic stress exposure. But what's interesting is when we looked at chronic stress appraisal, you can see that white older adults on average are reporting their stress as more upsetting than our black older adults. And I wanted to see if that really lines up with differences in anxiety and depression. Well, as soon as I started looking at diff race differences in anxiety and depression, you can see that our white group has actually lower rates of both anxiety and depressive symptoms. So there is no evidence of the black-white mental health paradox among older adults. It can be different at different points in the age group, but in general, in our sample, black older adults have more symptomology. So the difference here is that we're not measuring diagnoses. We're doing a count of symptoms of anxiety symptoms and depressive symptoms, which don't correspond perfectly to diagnoses. So that may be part of the measurement issue I was talking about earlier. But regardless, there's no paradox. But it's still interesting to see how both exposure and appraisal are related to depressive symptoms. So this is just showing exposure. Um, as exposure goes up across anxiety and depressive symptoms, you have a uh, increase in anxiety and depressive symptoms with increase in stress exposure. So stress exposure is graphed here across the bottom. Black people are in blue, white people are in this teal green color. And as we move up, you can see that black people have more anxiety systems, symptoms with more stress exposure. But when you look at depressive symptoms, you actually see the opposite. You see what's actually more um, consistent with the paradox, where as you have increases in stress exposure, you have lower, um, you have similar amounts, sorry, similar amounts of, or black people have lower amounts of depressive symptoms. So when you adjust, when you do the same thing and adjust for appraisal, it totally takes out all of the race differences in depressive symptoms, suggesting that appraisal is genuinely a coping mechanism. But Black older adults in general have a really unique stress experience, and appraisal may be a really productive coping mechanism that's reducing anxiety and depressive symptoms. This work needs to be tested in many more samples. Um, but the idea being that these older adults, these black older adults are really just more exposed to the stress and may be more effective at coping in older adulthood. Um, so I want to thank my funders and thank you guys in the audience for your time. And we will open it up for questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.